cantaloupe ultra Tuscan orange grapefruit. My God, America is imploding. Um, America is not really imploding anymore. How's Canada, Brooklyn? Uh, somewhat imploding. Uh, Vancouver Canucks had 16 players get COVID, so uh, pretty yikes. That is that sounds. I don't know what you said, but it sounds. They all making out together. It sounds, <laughs> sounds rough. <laughs> Welcome to Fan Zone, everybody. Uh, we're here for another match. We're still in uh, the heat of round one of this tournament, uh, but I believe this is the second to last match. This is the pen ultimate match, you could say, of round one of the tournament. And today we have a doozy of a match, as they say. We have Caleb Coho, who is the number seven seed going up against Ryan O'Regan, who is the number 10 seed. So these guys are pretty uh, close in the rankings. Um, the last time we saw Ryan, he played Brian Michaels. And the last time we saw Coho, he played Jacoby, who went on to uh, win the title in the next match. So um, the, both of these guys have played uh good people before Ryan's first, that was his second match to Brian. His first match before that was against RJ who just beat Robert. So lots of, lots of moving pieces here in the tournament and of these guys, uh, Cody, what do you think about the match? Uh, this match is going to be real interesting. Um, I think Ryan has every tool to beat Coho. And I think if Coho is out of his head, uh, he has a chance to be a champion one day in this league. Uh, it's always where Coho makes a few stumbles or a few mistakes. At some way, he beats himself up, and it affects the next question, and the next question, the next question, and then he's like in a sudden death situation. So, again, I think he has potential to become the champion at one point. I think Ryan has the potential to do an upset here tonight. So, either thing can happen. It's just uh, with a seven ten. An upset can clearly happen at this range. So, again, for both people, I hope you win. But I guess I'll be in charge of one of you losing. So, <laughs> And Brooklyn, what about you? Um, yeah, so I'm going to kind of echo what Cody said. Um, I think ultimately for both for both competitors, it's going to be a matter of who gets in their way, gets in their own way the least. Um, I think both of these competitors have a tendency to kind of grasp on branches whenever they think they're, think they're falling. Um, so I think it's a matter of keeping that composure uh, during the free form. Awesome. All right, so let's get into it, starting uh, by talking with the lower-seeded competitor, Mr. Ryan O'Regan. Sir, you are the 10-seed of this 16-seeded tournament. How are you feeling about playing Mr. Coho? Uh, well, first of all, I'm just happy to be in the top 10. That's always good. Nice round number. Uh, secondly, it's interesting to play against someone like uh, Caleb Coho because I don't know much about him in regards except for when he's managed people that I've gone up against. And back in his managerial days, uh, yes, I will admit he has the tendency to maybe get into somebody's head. Cody is absolutely right about that. Um, now, have I been under that spell before? Yes. Will I be under that spell today? We shall see. However, <laughs> I do think I have grown and matured since then. And after the uh, you know, good old Fast and Ash whipping I got last time I played this game, I do like to think I'm a little more tempered. So hopefully things will just go nice, even keel, and there'll be a, a pleasant conversation. Yeah, right. But we'll do our best. 
All right, sounds good. Uh, let's now bring in the higher-seeded player, Mr. Caleb Coho. Coho, the last time we saw you, you were playing Jacoby in the number one contenders match. Uh, how are you feeling about your match today, sir? It's free real estate. Uh, look, I uh, I was more so a joke about heads and being in them. Uh, oh. Anyway, what I'm saying, what, what I'm saying is, uh, Cody said I uh, could be the champion tonight. Apparently. Uh, does that mean Jacoby's going to come out of here with a steel chair? Because I don't need to see him again. No. Uh, I still have PTSD from the Jacoby match. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I heard I was in this. I was like, great. Is Jacoby in this? I want to run six miles in the opposite direction. Uh, can I go to Tarshish? That's the other side of the world, right? Uh, look, uh, I'm, uh, I'm excited to be back in debate. Uh, I don't have a lot of expectations uh, for this tournament. There's a lot of people in here that are like really good. Uh, so uh, I'm just I'm here to... I don't know, talk about movies. Why not? All right. Yeah, the winner of this match will go on to play the aforementioned RJ. So we could see a rematch uh, if Ryan wins, and uh, we could see something else that would be very spicy if Koho wins. So uh, this is going to be an interesting match. Let's get into it. Uh, starting off with one of the most spectacular uh, fight scenes, I think, that we could get pumped up by anything. It's going to be great. I'm so easily amused. I just am so easily amused. Uh, okay, so we are going to get into uh, the game. Here's how it's going to work. Uh, we have given these players uh, four prep questions um, uh, based on categories that they drafted. They will each have a minute opening, followed by a five-minute free form, followed by one-minute closings from each player. At the end of the debate, Brooklyn, Cody, and I will uh, write a name on the board of who we think won the point. Uh, the first person to get uh, three points will be the winner. If we are tied after the four points, uh, or after the four questions, we will move on to a bonus question. So we will get started with question number one, which comes in the category of fandom Oscars. I wonder who chose this one. Uh, the, question, me. the question is... What is the best fandom film to be nominated for sound mixing? So, uh, Koho, you drafted this category. You get to go first. You will have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. When we think of the best movies in fandom, The Dark Knight's one of the first ones, if not the first one to jump into mind for good reason. It's one of the most beautifully sounding, beautifully made. It's one of the most brilliant films to come out of this category, out of the, come out of the world of fandom, uh, the way that it subverts what you expect its entire genre to give you is the reason why it works. It's a crime film at its heart. It's got great performances in it. We could talk about Heath Ledger's Joker all day, all the time, because that performance is one of the all-time greats. But the reason why this movie works is because of the dynamics between the characters, what it has to say about uh, about morality, the duality within everyone, the Jekyll and Hyde theory. It all comes out in the heart of this heat based criminal uh, crime film that has Batman and Joker at the center of it. And I think that's one of the most brilliant things to ever do uh, in film. There's a reason why it works so well. It feels like a 30 minute movie. It's two and a half hours. It goes so fast. It's so entertaining. The action, the dialogue, brilliant all the way through. And of course it is just one of the most technically well-made movies I've ever seen in my life down to its nomination. Time. It's sound mixing. Uh, strike nomination, sound mixing Okay, from the record. 
I'm going to be like a Mazzario now. Uh, Ryan, <laughs> you now have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. I may be foreign to the whole fandom linked identity, but from what I can see of the movies that are used in that sort of uh, realm, you have these large scale, hugely sprawling open world sort of creations, whether it be, you know, young adult, Pixar, Marvel, whatever have you. And certainly comic book movies play into that, but you don't get much larger than Middle Earth. And you have to go with uh, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, if you're talking about fandom movies that were nominated for sound mixing. I mean, talk about an immersive experience. You are literally dragged into this world. All the creepy parts, all the broad fights, everything is so encompassing that you feel like you are a part of everything that's going on. You're not taken out, really, in any time that you're watching this film. And if this is supposed to be the measuring stick as to what you get in this sort of movie, absolutely. This is the one you go for. Time. All right. Perfect. All right. So the Dark Knight uh, versus the Return of the King. Five minutes free form. Don't talk over each other or I'll come in and hit you with a stick uh, when one of you starts talking. Go ahead. You can start. All right. Very well. So as far as I feel about the, the fandom aspect of it all, I, I can't understand that any movie that's been nominated, and there have been many other movies that have been nominated within fandom that have gone into sound mixing, editing, all that sort of stuff. I don't want to necessarily focus on that, but it does lend credence to the idea that if you want a movie that you just can really dive into, you get it more with something that's been you know, the, the crescendo of a franchise rather than just the best movie out of the three like you get with The Dark Knight. And unfortunately, The Dark Knight does have significant problems, especially in front of storytelling, sound, and you know, overall just feeling like there are certain parts where you get taken out of it. Um, I, I don't know if you can really compare like uh, the battle in front of Mira's Tith and against the, uh, the chase scene with the bat pod because that's just back and forth, back and forth. It's unnerving. Um, so the measuring stick by which you view fandom, I think is honestly probably the, where, where your argument goes entirely south. Uh, if fandom was just about the biggest movies, then, you know, Godzilla and Kong would have never been removed. Uh, when it comes to fandom, I think fandom means, fandom means more about, you know, the relationship that people have to the movies. But I think that the best movies in fandom are the ones that focus on the characters that focus on the story within it. Return of the King. It's fun. It's a giant movie of just action nonstop all the way through. But at the end of the Not day, necessarily. It's, I mean, you also the, look at something like uh, when they're in shell Bob's area and that's strictly uh, Sam and Frodo and even up at the, the crack of doom. You know, if you we, don't if have we your wanna, focus. It's just not on everybody. There are minor characters and they're a major. Yeah, but if you want to talk about problems that take you out of the movie, you just named one of them. So my thing with Return of the King... That is not though, a problem with the movie. Oh, that's something you get absolutely. When you're going right that's a detour. It. That's a detour. Uh, but when, when I look at Return of the King, Return of the King is, like you said, the crescendo, a third part of a story that requires me to sit through six hours of exposition to get to three hours of payoff that doesn't quite pay off if I don't care about the people in it. And I don't care about the people in it. Return of the King is not the reason why I care about anyone in it. I don't care about the people in Return in the Lord of the Rings movie. So for me, I don't really see how that can be qualified as the best of it when none of the Lord of the Rings movies really elicit a reaction that way. The thing that I, the reason why I think the Dark Knight does 
uh, what I is the best fandom movie for all of these qualifiers is because not only is it big, it's all of your spectacle. Of course, you have the spectacle. You have the bank heist at the beginning. You have, uh, you have every time the Joker's on screen, it's electric, magnetic. You have the interrogation room fight. There's a lot of big pieces in this movie that are beautiful to look at and just breathtaking. But I think within it, you also have a lot of interesting ideas being posed about the condition of man with the Joker and Batman down to just the last line where it's just sanity's like gravity. All it takes is a little push. And I think that's why The Dark Knight brings more as a film than Return of the King, whereas Return of the King is just a lot of fun CGI battle. It is far from a lot of CGI battle. It's a lot of uh, wish fulfillment, even. I mean, you're, you're getting what the final scene went, the Frodo going ahead and finally fighting off Smeagol and getting the drop the ring. It's the tower of Sauron coming down. It's the fight between the Witch King and Erwin, where she is finally the one that takes him down. There's a lot of little pieces that come together. And again, going to the idea of the sound mixing, sound mixing is when you bring everything together and it all soups together and it blends. You get that with this movie. You don't get it with The Dark Knight. If anything, The Dark Knight jumps around way too goddamn much. There are moments, I mean, you're going to tell me that you can compare any scene in Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, to that goddamn shootout that happens with the Scarecrow and the goddamn dummy uh, Batman. I was going to say that the Return of the Kings doesn't have anything comparable to the Dark Knight. So the Dark Knight is just action that I can tell what's happening. The thing with the Dark Knight is that the Dark Knight, Dark Knight the Dark, has a lot of action that doesn't play into anything. It's a lot of it absolutely, it absolutely does play in the story. The entire chase scene where they are doing the uh, transporting of Harvey Dent absolutely plays into the story. It has a big impact on the story and, and as to what they're actually doing with the film and the character of Harvey Dent and the manipulation and the, the way that, and, and the sort of and, everything. The boat scene is pretty much one of the most ridiculous contrived things I've ever seen in a movie. That's the, that's the point of the movie is what is the good in the nature and humanity? It's is, can you corrupt someone? It's the, literally the entire point of the joke. You get the same thing in the return of the ring. Can someone be fully corrupted? Frodo certainly wasn't able to be corrupted. I want, I want to go back to you real quick. You said that there, there are things, there's things in the Dark Knight that don't match up and line up and jumps around too much. You haven't given any single example, whereas I've told you in The Return of the King, there's too much things that don't connect. Sure, it's like a too much payoff. There's almost 45 minutes of let's wrap things up, but none of it matters. Why the hell is Rosie Cotton introduced in the last movie? She does nothing. That's a waste of 25 minutes of this movie for a three and a half hour long movie that doesn't need to be that long. It's a waste of time. You could say the same thing about any of the romance angle with Rachel and everything because that's also part of the plot of the movie. With her in the first movie, so why am I going to care about her in the second? It's the point of the Joker's argument the more, the, the, the deterioration of someone's sanity and morality through Harvey Dent. It's a, a part of the point. The time. All right, Ryan, you have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. All right, the question isn't necessarily the best fandom film overall. It's the best fandom film that was nominated for sound mixing. So you have to play into that sort of, to a certain extent. Between the music, the fight sounds, the audible uh, talking that you can hear from every single character when you need to hear it, it is a fully entrancing experience. It is not just about the fights. It's about the journey that each single person has gone on and how they finally wrap up and get their just desserts at the end. If you're going to go ahead and talk to me about like, 
you know, uh, none of that plays in. Everything with Samwise and Frodo plays in. Everything with Schmeagle plays in as he finally gets his rewards. It's a nice, fully feeling movie. Whereas The Dark Knight is one of those movies that's pretty much just more of Christopher Nolan's bang, zoom, sort of over-encompassing audio trying to drown out anything that may be important that's going on in the film. It's a lot more fluff than people give it credit for, and people just want to go ahead and say, oh, it's the best come-up with film compared to other Batman movies, Prime. maybe. All right, Coho, you now have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. I'd like to point out he did not mention Rosie Cotton. Rosie Cotton is an absolute waste of time. The movie has about 30 minutes of things you can cut. You can't call it a fully immersive experience when people are introduced in this movie that aren't even paid off, that don't add anything to the payoff, and we want to bring in sound mixing. That wasn't really the point. It's really a qualifier for the question. Uh, but the Dark Knight sound mixing is perfect. I can hear every line of dialogue. It moves out. And literally the, the screeching sounds of the Joker at the beginning of that score helps intensify the mood. So sound mixing absolutely does play in. Uh, he brought up how the boat scene is a big detractor and doesn't do anything where Rachel Dawes are things that don't connect. That's literally the entire Joker's point. They build to that crescendo of Harvey Dent's fall, that example of the duality of man and how someone could be corrupted, even the best of us. And that is exactly the point of the movie. So it's not diverting and cutting away it's the point of the movie it's the heart of the dark knight the lord of the rings turn of the game doesn't have a heart at the end of the day because it jumps around to the things that don't matter rosie cotton and and uh, the fight with the with the uh, witch king like they don't end up don't tying in at the end of the day time man you are so lucky i don't have to fucking agree with anything any of you people say because uh, the Return of the King is perfect filmmaking. Um, okay. We've had that fight already. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, do we all have our answers written? Judges? Nope. Okay. I'm good. He's watching the Red Sox. They're winning. The Red Sox just tied it. Um... <sighs> okay. Um, I'll go first. I think this was actually a lot closer than it may seem. Uh, both players did a lot of um, bashing the other person's movie, but when I when it came to defending their movie and the bashings that were brought up, I think Coho did a better job um, on that specific point. I think the the, the throws were pretty equal uh, when it came to the other person's movie, but when it came to defending their movie and the question, I think Coho's right. The sound mixing was more of a qualifier it, it, uh, to me. So uh, yeah, I give it to Coho. Brooklyn, you get to go next. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and point to, to Caleb as well. Um, I definitely understand where Ryan, where Ryan is coming from and in, in his, in his argument, like whenever, whenever he's opening, I appreciated that. But I think what happened was I think he just bit off a little more than a little more than he could chew. Um, and some, there were some argument points that just fell a little flat for me. All right, Cody, your vote doesn't count. Where would you have gone and why? So I think sound mixing does play into the question for me. I think it does qualify, but I think it does have a little bit of a play. And um, I think Ryan was able to tie that in. And I think he was able to combat Coho a little bit more on the movies. I think it's hard because both movies are excellent. So it's hard to like, it's basically nitpicking on both sides. Uh, but I would have went with Ryan. On this one. Okay. All right. So Coho uh, gets the first point, but we're going to move on to question number two, which is from a category that Ryan drafted. Uh, this is the category of horror. And the question is, what is the scariest moment in a 2010s horror movie? Uh, so Ryan, you drafted this. You get to go first. You have one minute when you start talking. 
Now, you may not know this from looking at me, but I am not a person that scares easily. Uh, I've done my, you know, scaring and Six Flags Great Adventure and all that sort of stuff. So I have a certain idea about what can frighten me. And there are very few moments that I can say intrinsically have happened in a movie where I've been like taken back or I've been shook or I've been like, ah, wow, wow, how did that happen? Where did that come from? One of those moments that always sticks out in my head uh, would be from The Conjuring, the first movie. And that would be the dresser scene, uh, pretty much in which you have, uh, you know, the two girls, you have Cindy and, um, what was it? Uh, Cindy and Andrea uh, having their first encounter with Bathsheba. Now, up until this point, we had never seen Bathsheba before. We knew that there was a ghost in the house. We knew what was going on. But no one was ready for the first encounter of this ghoulish fiend that went ahead and attacked these girls so mercilessly. I was prime. All right. Coho, you now have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. 2018 gave us a horror movie that no one expected to be really great, and then it blew us all away with A Quiet Place, John Krasinski's film, which is predicated entirely on you have to be quiet to survive against these monsters. So when you have a main character that we have now grown to love in Emily Blunt, uh, who is pregnant and now has to give birth in a bathtub in the middle of an attack on this house, where if she makes a noise, she dies and then her newborn dies is a horrifying experience. That entire moment is horrifying to watch because I couldn't, I didn't want to make noise. I couldn't breathe. And I, I sat there through that entire moment fearing for this woman's life, fearing for that family's life, for that child's life, because that is the most painful thing a person could go through. <laughs> like, I, I mean, like, it's, it's brutal. I can't imagine her not screaming in that moment and that she has to hold it in. You could see her face. And in those moments, she's trying so hard to save hers and her child's life by not making any noise. And that is not just physical terror, that is emotional terror, which my scene does significantly better than Ryan scene, but I'll get into it freeform. Time. All right. So, uh, five minutes of freeform when one of you starts talking. Remember, try not to talk over each other too much. All right. Five minutes when one of you starts. All right, so, you uh, thank you very much. Uh, so, the my issue with your scene is that it's not very special. Uh, like, the entire predication of your jump scare is it's a creepy person on a drawer. It, it, to me, that scene feels a lot more like something I've seen already in, like, a Ouija or in an... And honestly, done better in, like, Annabelle creation, like, in other installments of your own franchise. I feel like that's there's nothing inherently special about that scare. I wasn't that scared from that moment. There's nothing that your scene does extremely specially to make it scarier than mine. Right, but that's the thing. If you have scares and it works, you don't fuck with the formula. If you have something and you go ahead and you bring somebody and you turn up the music and there's nothing there and then all of a sudden you pan up, pop up, this ghoulish thing is just like looking at you that you were not expecting to be there because it wasn't there before. You're expecting maybe something to come out of the closet or you're expecting some, the girl Cindy to be possessed. You're alluded to all these different horror tropes because of what you've seen before and you don't see that coming. However, the bathtub scene, I, I wouldn't even say is necessarily the scariest part of the whole damn movie. Her stepping on the damn nail is more scary than her going into the bathtub because is all it? the outside stuff that's happening with the fireworks being set up you know there's going to be a sound and you know something's going to be distracted so there is no consequence of anything happening to her or the baby that's absolutely incorrect my thing with the nail is that the nail is more painful sure did you feel that nail going through yeah absolutely but that's not scary that's just empathy 
uh, your scene, and like you literally just nailed it. Your scene is telegraphed. Your scene has been done a thousand times before, done better in movies before and since. I knew it was yeah, coming in your it scares, it scares. But it doesn't it's scare. That's because it's been done before does not make it any less scary. No, but the that fact is the is there's no scare in your scene with her just with the blood dripping out from you know the baby's crowning and everything. There is there no fret. There is no reason that she is going to necessarily be attacked because we already see everything happening off in the distance that's going to stop it from happening. There's absolutely I don't know what was going to happen to the girls when fucking Bathsheba dropped off the thing and started choking her to death and everyone's running from the outside to go see what's wrong with her. We don't know yeah. what was happened yes, to her. Yes, we do because you've seen The Exorcist. Whatever. You do because you've seen The Exorcist. Every horror movie leading up, it's literally a cookie cutter recreation of things that have been done better previously. That's the issue. Is I knew it was coming. It's not scary to me because I know what's happening. So you knew that there was someone going to be someone let, on top of Let Coho keep going. Let Coho keep going. So my issue with your scene is that it is literally things I've seen before. That's why it's not scary at all. Because you know, oh, nothing's in the cat. It's going to come from the top. It's going to be a creepy looking thing. And that's a normal jump scare. To me, the reason why that my scene works is, yeah, you're horrified. Because, yeah, there's the fireworks and the is, But one of the monsters notices. The thing is, if they hear a baby crying, if they hear her screaming, there's a, there's literally a monster in the house. It's on the poster. There's an image of it on the poster. The, there's a monster in the house. If she makes noise, it kills her. That's horrifying. And that it's not just her life on the line. It's a newborn baby on the line. That entire thing, there's more empathy and emotion in my scene. That makes it scarier. There's more stakes to my scene. That makes it scarier and different and unique. There is no space that something's going to happen to possibly Emily Blunt, the main star of the movie, as opposed to one of the little children that may be, you know, corrupted or hurt or killed, which we've seen in plenty of movies before. We've seen the children. Emily Blunt could totally died. She wasn't the highest billed star. John Krasinski was. So you you absolutely. It doesn't matter. She's up on top billing. She's married to the director. She's not going to die. Nothing's going to happen to Emily Blunt. Maybe it would have happened to one of the kids like we would have seen before. That I might have cared about. But nothing was going to happen to one of the adults until something finally happened. And even then, it was to the father, not to her. Nothing's happening to her. I'm not worried about her. I am worried about goddamn Andrea being attacked. Here's my issue, though. My issue with what you're saying is that you are bringing your own things to that scene that isn't on the scene. That's not on the scene at all. The, The issue is your scene does literally invite imagery from old movies so you know what's going to happen it's not uniquely set up and it's not yours uniquely doesn't scary. with the shadow going up the stairwell that's yes, certainly it doesn't done before. Oh, learning, no, a, learning, a character who is about a baby crying that's certainly going to be done before the baby there's crying, nothing new about yours either yes there is a baby crying where if you make noise they're going to find you and kill you because they're blind monsters that literally only see from from uh, from hearing that is that's a complete that's, that's the basis point of out one movie that's done that. you've seen that one, one other movie besides this is going to be nothing different Give me another movie besides The Quiet Place that you've seen that in. Bird Box. Bird Box came after, inspired by A Quiet Place. No, it was in production at the same time. No, they weren't. A Quiet Place came out a full year ahead of it. It was a in production. That means they're making it at the same time that a movie is even right? You can't say that it wasn't in, It was directly it wasn't. inspired. It wasn't. It, wasn't enough. it was directly inspired. It came out a full year and a half. It was, there was not no directly project. inspired. No, off topic. The fact of the matter is there's nothing scary about your particular scene. There is nothing scary because there is nothing that's actually happening to the girl. There is nothing happening to the baby. And there's nothing happening to the family yet. Time. All right. Uh, Coho, you now have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. 
Ryan literally couldn't pick up a movie that came out before A Quiet Place that had done something like that. Bird Box doesn't even do that scene. Bird Box does not do that scene. A Quiet Place scene has a lot more stakes because you care about the characters in it because that unique premise of someone who, if they make noise, is going to die from this monster in the house. You're worried about that, baby. You are worried about Emily Blunt. Uh, yeah, apparently, if you know that John Krasinski is the, is the husband of Emily Blunt, that means she can't die. But the issue with his scene is that it is, on a technical level, built off of about 40 to 50 years of horror that has done that. It's a normal jump scare. There's nothing special about that jump scare in the film or on a technical level that makes it worth being scared for. I was not scared. I knew that character was up on there. It's not a uniquely built jump scare. Mine is a uniquely constructed scene that has a lot of stakes and a lot of weight to it that makes it scarier on an emotional level that The Conjuring does not bring to its own scene. It's just a normal setup jump scare. Mine brings a lot of emotional stakes and emotional weight to the movie in that moment that is absolutely scary in a way that his scene cannot provide because it's a normal horror movie. That's fine. Okay. Uh, Ryan, you now have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. This may just be mean, but I think he's making the argument for me. It's a jump scare. It is a scare. It is the epitome of what you are to expect in a film. And if it scares you, then it works. <laughs> you go ahead and complain about all the stuff that came before it. Well, that's because it all works. There's nothing that works about her sitting in the bathtub and possibly going to scream. And even when she does scream, all the fireworks are going off and everything's distracted anyways. There is no consequence. There is no fear. You There is nothing happening to her. But certainly when Andrea is being attacked by Bathsheba, who we have never seen in physical form up until that very point. We got a physical manifestation of the thing that has corrupted the entire house, is hurting everybody. You don't expect there to be one. And then when you see it, you are shocked. When they zoom up and zoom in so suddenly, you are taken out of whatever expectation you may have had, and that's what you're getting, and that's what it hits you. You go ahead and say that the bathtub is uh, emotionally uh, inviting. You may care about the character, but certainly anyone who's ever watched a horror movie knows that nothing's happening to her. Time. Okie dokie. Artichoke, as they say. All right. Um, do we all have our votes? Yes. Cody, you get to go first because your vote didn't count last time. Uh, so I'm just going to reiterate this. This is not because I hate this person. I actually love this person a whole lot. So my whole thing is, so with the voting, I think what the question was, if it was groundbreaking, if it was something that was done before, sure. I think one person argued a side of this question that wasn't actually the question. Done before, overdid, people did it before, doesn't make the scene less scary. And I think Koho argued a tense scene not a scary scene. Like how he was describing it, it was like, if something happens, if thing that you can feel the tension building, but actual scare, I think we got that from Ryan throughout a scene. And I think his closing was super strong to reiterate that point. So my vote's right. Um, a little bit of housekeeping for me. Uh, a Quiet Place came out in April of 2018. Bird Box came out in December of 2018. Uh, that has nothing to do with uh, who I voted for. I also voted for Ryan, um, mostly echoing Cody's points. Um, him him saying at the end, I think you're making the argument for me. It's about what's scary, and it works, and it was scary. Uh, so that really worked for me. I thought his closing was really strong as well. I actually really liked Coho's argument. I just... I think that Ryan at the base level of the question was arguing it better. Uh, but I think both played well. Just Ryan had it uh, more worked for me. So Ryan gets point number two. Brooklyn, your vote doesn't count. Where would you have gone and why? 
Um, I agree that Ryan had a really good closing, but I would have would have went with. Um, he was he was dominating the free form, and then that whole Emily Blunt John Krasinski angle just kind of threw me off. Kind of like uh, Chael Sonnen throwing a spinning back kick when he don't to. Um, just yeah, you're you're ahead at that point. I don't know what that means. Um, okay, so um, we're gonna move on to question number three. Is that a poker term? <laughs> Which is the category of biopics. This was chosen by Mr. Coho. And the question is uh, what is the best performance in an Aaron Sorkin written biopic? Uh, so we're gonna start with Mr. Coho, who drafted this. You have one minute to open when you start talking. Aaron Sorkin writes some dope-ass biopics. He's written a lot of great movies over the course of the years. And the performance within his that encapsulates the dialogue, that encapsulates the person he's supposed to be the best, is Michael Fassbender and Steve Jobs. Michael Fassbender and Steve Jobs gives you a complete portrait of a man from three different days, three different mornings in his life. And the growth that Michael Fassbender shows in each of those three moments is insanity. Michael Fassbender feels like three different people, but all the same person at once. Michael Fassbender's performance is so enriching and layered from the moment in the beginning where he's, you know, abusive to Michael Stuhlbarg and Kate Winslet and doesn't really believe in his daughter being his daughter. And he's so mean to Catherine Waterston to the second where he's like a really good dad and cares about her. And to the third part where he's just realizes how much of an asshole he was in the past and is trying to make up for it, but still knows he's kind of toxic at times. He's trying to work on that. It's growth. And Fassbender gives growth throughout that entire movie through all three moments in such a way that I don't think anyone else could have ever done. Michael Fassbender, Steve Jobs is one of the best performances I've ever seen in my life, let alone a biopic. Okay. Um, I need it to say hello. Uh, Ryan, you now have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. When I thought about the question about who was the best performance in an Aaron Sorkin written biopic, uh, whether or not you want to see that as a qualifier, I definitely see it as pretty much the basis of how the person should be acting in the film. Aaron Sorkin has a very unique writing style. He has a fast pace. He has a witty dialogue. He likes confrontation. And you don't get all three of those unless you view Jesse Eisenberg as Mark Zuckerberg in The Social Network. Uh, now, this is obviously a movie that many people enjoy, and the thing about Jesse Eisenberg's performance is that we have an idea about who Mark Zuckerberg is, but now we actually saw how we got to that point. And it may not have been an entire lifetime, but it's certainly within the quality of a few years, you get the idea of this, this lonesome, uh, you know, anti-social sort of person who creates the a kingdom for him to rule in himself. He's vulnerable, but he's also just as snide and conceiving as you can get with a villain, an anti-hero. All right. Uh, these are two of my favorite movies, so be careful, gentlemen. Uh, all right, five <laughs> minutes, five minutes of free form when one of you starts talking. Uh, I started last year, Tommy. You can go ahead. All right. So here's the difference I'm seeing between the two of our picks here. Um, now, like I said, uh, he's an anti-hero, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, and Jason Eisenberg pretty much pulls off this uh, coy, shy, but also very tense, very, you know, almost venomous person whenever you need to cross him or, you know, he feels slighted. Whereas Steve Jobs, he's just pretty much a dick throughout the whole movie up until the last scene when his daughter confronts him. He's pretty much just bossing everybody around. He's telling everyone, you know, it has to be done his way. And that's pretty much a typical Aaron Sorgan, uh, you know, lead character, someone who's the smartest person in the world, in the room, and he knows it. 
I, I just there isn't as much uh, depth as you would probably think from somebody like him because simply saying that uh, Steve Jobs' character is, you know, uh, uh, there's growth. There's growth at maybe like you know the one one hour fifty five minute mark. That's pretty uh, much about it. Here on the rooftop, that's the growth. Everything it's really else not. is just him being a dick in different decades. It's it's really not because immediately in the middle of the movie, in the second part, you see how he talks to his daughter with with the um where she's asking the question again. She asked the question about the song again. He's like, "You just asked me that. Why are you asking me that?" And he's like, actually trying to. It's not him. It's not him being a dick. It's him actually just trying to relate to her and understand what he did. It's the, he grows in every minute of this movie. And sure, he's a dick. At points, but the issue with what you're saying is your character is never not a dick. And honestly, Jesse Eisenberg's performance is nothing new. He's actually not even really being Mark Zuckerberg. He's being Jesse Eisenberg. He's not the best performance in your movie. If you wanted to win, you pick Andrew Garfield, who actually is different and insane and like gives some great performances. The issue with Jesse Eisenberg is that you said, yeah, he's cunning and villainous and venomous and and a uh, prick. He's that in Adventureland. He's that in Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. He's he's that in American Ultra. He's that in every movie he's ever been in. Jesse Eisenberg has one mode, and that's what he does in the social network. First of all, he was barely like that in Adventureland. But the thing about Jason Eisenberg's performance is that up until this point, he had pretty much been known for doing more bad horror and comedy. Uh, he was doing Adventureland. He was doing Zombieland. He did Cursed. He, he did a whole slew of movies that didn't really show what he could do whale. dramatically. This shows what kind of a dramatic character he can be. And he fits the role perfectly, considering the kind of character that Aaron Sorkin has written for him. Whereas Fassbender, Fassbender's been doing drama his whole damn life. He's been cold and calculating in plenty of movies. This is nothing so new it's Jesse him. Eisenberg. Your argument is literally against your own performance. Jesse Eisenberg has done exactly what you said all the time. No, so what you can't you can't use your argument to bash Michael Fassbender when you're arguing that performance right now. The thing with Michael Fassbender is you say he's a dick and cold and calculating. He's really not because there's also the flashbacks of the garage with him and Seth Rogen where they're being funny and having great banter with each other and being friends and also have those tiffs that friends do. But the thing is, he is five to ten minutes in a two-hour movie does not pretty much show the expanse the of a entire two-hour movie. He is this way. Every different character he has a different interaction with Michael Stuhlbarg. He's a dick, sure, but Kate Winslet gets to see his human side. Like, she gets to see his sad side. Je Scully is like a dad to him. Jeff Daniels is a dad to him, and he plays like a son to a dad every time they talk. Seth Rogen, they have that big moment in the orchestra pit where he's like, "Well, I play the orchestra," and in that moment where it's real true guard down friendship between the two he's different with every person jesse eisenberg is just a dick a chair is does everyone owe money to a chair to every person he talks to no jesse eisenberg playing zuckerberg is pretty much one of the more critically vulnerable characters that sorkin has written you see him being vulnerable whenever he's trying to keep erica there at the bar you see him being vulnerable whenever he sees eduardo going hierarchy and in the frat and still he's being like oh i'm here but you're up there so he's you know he's hurt He's constantly hurt. Everything he does is because he has been hurt and he wants to belong. Whereas Steve is already at the top of the food chain. He's just dictating orders. And that is that is absolutely incorrect. But also your your argument there is I wouldn't get any of that from his performance. That's because Sorkin's script is brilliant. The issue with Jesse Asper's performance is he's not telling you any of that. He's not giving you any of that information because he's never his face is never anything but and angry and oh, no, spitting out and spitting out and spitting out smarmy dickish uh, dialogue mm, to well. everyone, including Eduardo. Right, well, physical appearances aside, all right. At least he fits the character a little bit better. If he it doesn't. wasn't for the hair and makeup that he had to do, you know, there's no way Fastbender would have pulled off jobs. But at least he doesn't Eisenberg have any hair or makeup. It's the character of Zuckerberg as this frail, emotionally stunted person who doesn't know how to react with people. 
but he doesn't give you any. What do you? That's I don't. I, I'm really confused. Going up no, hold on. I'm really that. confused how you're saying. Oh, he shows vulnerability in this moment when all he does is talk really fast in monotone and be an asshole to every person in every line. Which the is issue, actually pretty perfect when you look at how Aaron Sorkin writes his protagonists and his lead characters. His, his Aaron Sorkin's best wit, everything about it fits Sorkin perfectly for what he writes. Time. All right, Ryan, you now have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. Okay, so I think the best line to really sum this up would be pretty much the line that Rashida Jones gives to you know Eisenberg at the end of the movie, where he says, "You're not an asshole. You're just trying hard, so hard to be one." So Eisenberg, whether he's going ahead and playing this uh, fractured uh, psyche who is rejected by people, or whether he's somebody who's just going along with the flow whenever Timberlake's character tells him something fun that's going to make him feel included make him feel on top he's manipulated he's misguided he is the perfect type of aaron sorkin protagonist that you can get because with all of his faults with all of his visceral with all the times that he bites at people it's because he's wounded it's because he's hurt and he finally goes and you know fulfills his ambition to succeed and get what he wants and even then, he's not satisfied because he knows that comes at a price. That's what you get with every single Aaron Sorkin character. And Eisenberg pours it off nice time. All right. Coho, you now have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. The line he just said perfectly summarizes why Jesse Eisenberg's performance is not good. Because Jesse Eisenberg's performance didn't tell you that. Other characters in the movie have to tell you what Jesse Eisenberg's character is. His performance isn't anything. It's a blank slate of a blank person that he does in every movie. There's no emotion with Eisenberg, but he's there's also no character with Eisenberg. The reason why Fastbender's performance is so good is because you have all of the reasons why he says his character works. The smartest guy in the room, the one with the fractured psyche and a broken ego, comes with Michael Fast Spender's entire character and he shows it and portrays it and grows from it through three acts of a movie. The way he talks to Kate Winslet, the way he talks to his daughter, the way he talks to Jeff Daniels like a father, the way he talks to Seth Rogen like a friend, the way he yells at Michael Stuhlbarg and then comes around on Stuhlbarg. The way Fassbender portrays Steve Jobs shows a fully realized character in a way that Jesse Eisenberg's performance doesn't do. Yes, he gets to be an asshole, but Sorkin does better when he writes for a character with a fully realized arc and Steve Jobs has that and Zuckerberg doesn't. Time. Okie dokie. Um, I lost my pen. Sorry, second here. I legit like lost my pen. I don't know what I did with it. I might have to go first. Never mind. I found it. I should probably bring in the players too, huh? I mean, like, um, are you guys good? Yeah. Yep. Uh, Brooklyn, you get to go first. 
Um, I'm going to give my point to Ryan. Um, he did a really good job in, in the free form, and I think he just was able to have a balanced offensive defense and really gets me the point. Okay. Cody. Well, one person acted like somebody owed them fucking money, and they were about to beat someone's ass throughout this entire fight. And this is no shot against Ryan, but Caleb over here needed to fucking – he was not going to walk away without this point. It was fucking he, – he put foot on throat and pressed down. It was insane. So I think that was one of the best debates from Coho I've seen. So hold on. And who do I agree with? Uh, I agree with Cody. I gave it to Caleb. Uh, and it, what really sold me on that was the closing. Um, I thought I, I thought Coho was doing a great job. I thought Ryan was doing a great job during the free form. I, I agree with Brooklyn. Ryan did a really, really great job during the free form back and forth. But Coho's closing really sold me. Uh, so Coho gets the third point. It is Pitch now better two. have my money. <laughs> it, is, it is now two to one. Uh, as we get into the final prep question, so Ryan does need to hit this in order to send it to the bonus question. Uh, this is a category that he drafted. It is the category of DreamWorks Animation. And the question is, what is the funniest scene in a Shrek franchise film? Uh, so, Ryan, you get to go first on this one. You have one minute when you start talking. Now, there's really a lot of funny scenes in the Shrek franchise. Five films, uh, sixth on the way with a Puss in Boots 2 was equal. But uh, I think both me and Coho uh, can agree. The funniest of them is Shrek 2. It, it is just so good. It hits on so many beats. But the funniest scene for me in this movie would be the dinner scene. As soon as uh, Shrek and Fiona arrive, they end up having dinner with Lillian and Harold. And there's just a universal truth to this whole scene uh whether you're one of those people that's been in an awkward dinner or one of those people that's kind of like the donkey and you're just kind of like shoehorning yourself into something that you really shouldn't it's it's classic it's it, it definitely hits on all the levels when it's supposed to there's awkwardness there's callbacks to the original film there's the uh impromptu food fight that goes on between shrek and harold there's just a timelessness to it that every time you watch it, regardless of your young or old, you're still going to laugh at it. Time. All right. Coho, you now have one minute when you start talking. Nothing makes me laugh harder than food fights and saying each other's names aggressively, progressively throughout five minutes of talking. Uh, the best jokes in Shrek 2 are the ones where you have to be a little bit older than the movie to understand what's happening in it. And I think the Knights parody that they do is beat for beat, nonstop hilarity. So to set the scene, all of the fairy tale creatures are sitting in Shrek's house, house sitting, watching on the magic mirror and flipping through the channels and they get to Nights, which is a parody of a TV show called Cops. Uh, and it is hysterical. Down to when they cut in, they go, we're chasing a white Bronco through Main Street of Far, Far Away till they capture them and they are yelling at Shrek. Shrek's like, I, I'm Shrek. It's me. I'm trying to get to Fiona. And they are grinding. Instead of pepper spray, just straight pepper into their eyes with pepper grinders. I think there's little touches that help build the world of Shrek 2 in funny ways that this scene does. It builds this world in a great way. It makes you laugh so hard at the referential humor, but the referential humor that makes sense to what they're doing. I think that's what makes Shrek better is when they fit the world into their own. Time. All right, both scenes coming from Shrek 2 on DVD or VHS, gentlemen? Shrek 2 on DVD. 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 Okay, chance. All right. All right, fair. Uh, five minutes of freeform when one of you starts 
right. Uh, so the reason why your scene is not that funny is that it there's really nothing funny about it. It's actually probably one of the more tense scenes and one of the more real scenes in that movie. Uh, and if you're laughing, you're not, you're laughing nervously and you're not supposed to be ex until he says donkey, which is hysterical. Great punchline. The reason why I think mine works better is because I, like I said in my opening, I think that Shrek jokes work best when they take the real world that you recognize and fit them into the prism of the Shrek world and make fun of it. And that's what that entire night. Right. And if you're an audience that's watching the movie now, as opposed to 2004, when the movie came out, which real world experience are you going to be able to relate more to yourself? The fact that you're having an awkward family dinner or the fact that you're watching a sh possibly watching a show, which is now off the air, which isn't even relevant to this day. But here's the issue. We're not arguing most relevant or most uh, or more self-relevant scene. We're arguing funny. No, you have, you have to do relevancy when it comes to funny because if you're, if you're someone that's never watched Cops, you're not going to I have never it. watched an episode of Cops in my life, and I think that scene is hysterical. That's why You've I You've never watched it. So how were you able to tell what everything was? It, you, you because I know that there was a show called Cops. It's, and a, it's, a, it's funny in a bubble. It's funny for the time, but it's not funny that it lasts on. Especially nowadays, the whole cops thing is pretty much just more cringy. If you're a little kid watching that scene, all you're seeing is your three heroes getting beaten up and thrown into a wagon. At least with my scene, you've got an impromptu food fight, you've got the burping, you've got the awkward choking whenever they're both talking about children. You've got enough physical and verbal comedy to keep going for children and adults. My you scene. can say that it's for an older audience, but it should be for everybody. My, my scene is for everyone because even if you take the adult humor out of it, you still have people laughing. You have all the characters yelling and saying really funny things that I mean, as a kid, just thought it was a really funny arrest. Police brutality is funny. I whoa, okay, you took it there, but I was talking. I was talking about donkey yelling and puss in boots yelling about cat. Oh, this is catnip. It, that's not mine. That's hysterical to a kid who is that's literally not hysterical just to a kid. Yes, don't it know is what because I was four. I'm literally the example of telling you that your argument doesn't work because I've never watched I've never watched cops. You don't need to know what cops is except that this this is a show called Nights. No, I'm saying but hold it on, helps on. if you watch cops, certainly. It but does, if you never watch cops and you're seeing this scene for the first time, the humor is gonna be lost on you. At least with my scene, the humor is not lost. You are getting the jokes that are being presented what humor? to you. What humor? Because there's my issue with your scene. Okay, your first of all, funny. you've got uh, you know Julie Andrews, Lillian just it's so nice when we get the family at the dinner looking so solemn and everything. As the food's flying, you've got the violence against the chicken and the crackers and the nuts that Harold and Shrek are going after. It's ridiculous violence because they know why they want to do it to themselves, but they're not doing it to instead these inanimate foods. You, you've got the, the you've got a classic burp and uh, better out than in. I always burp say it's a so nice callback to the first movie. You've burp got so these nice little bits and pieces that come together and are relatable. Fun, the best thing, like you said, the best is when it brings reality into its world. That is certainly more reality than Cops was. No, it really isn't because here's the issue. I was four. I'm not married. I have no idea what this scene is supposed to be. If we're going to argue with your scene right now as to your logic of why mine doesn't work, then yours equally doesn't work because no kid is going to laugh at meeting your parents for the first time because they no, but don't they'll laugh at the burping. They'll laugh at the choking. They'll laugh at the food. And that's not good humor, is it, Ryan? Here's yes, my it thing. is humor. I can watch that good still humor. and laugh at it. I that's can't watch the cops of the night stuff and laugh at it still. My issue with what you're saying is that you're saying, oh, well, if you're a kid and watching my scene, then you can laugh at stupid shit. And I'm saying stupid shit's not funny. The reason why my scene works, see, reason why I was not alive for OJ. I was not alive for cops. I never watched cops, but I understand what these are because I can still get it. They don't exist in this little bubble of 2004. They have transcended that past time. People still know what these things are, and it's still funny. It's the humor doesn't hit the same way as it did it back does, then. Because it's 2020, and I watched it, and I laughed harder in 2020 than I did in 2000. 
2018 that I didn't. 2004. It you're still saying that because you're making the argument, certainly. I'm not but, because I. Why would I pick it? One the, minute. No, the fact of the matter is, you're picking this thing just because it's like a little bunch of like referential material. It's not really jokes. It's just references. It it's not humor. It's not joke played up. It is because what it does is it takes the world, puts it in the prism of their world, and which is what they do for the entire franchise. They but that's taking real world things and putting it into the world of far, far away and everywhere else for the all of the movies. It's nothing spectacular. It's nothing new. Uh, the, what I'm saying is yes, the entire that's when Shrek's that's my point. Shrek's humor works best when they do that, and this is the best case of when they do that. That's what I'm arguing, and, and that's why I would debate the differ. I would say mine is certainly a lot more. Certainly a lot more bringing the world world in. You're arguing that burps and farts and throwing chicken across the room is funnier than having pepper. First of all, they throw the chicken across the room, just split it open, and took the wishbone, and then the pig went up in the air. All right, donkey, great joke. I said you were paying Oh my lord, Coho, you have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. Tim, Cody, Brooklyn, Ryan, comedy. Give me the script, Oscar. Now that's his. Apparently, that's hysterical comedy. Here's the issue with his scene. His scene is not funny. It's tense. It's supposed to be tense. It's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable, and it effectively does that. It's a good scene, but it's not a funny scene unless you really like burp jokes, throwing food, and yelling people's names. Mine works outside of its bubble because I'm still laughing at it today. It's still things that we can understand and recognize, and even if you take the references out of it, it is. Is still hysterical comedy from these characters reacting to a situation that they don't want to be in. It works. The Shrek franchise does the references well, and they do them the best when they take a reference, put in the prism of the Shrek franchise, and show it to you. And you laugh. The pepper grinders in the eyes is still hysterical. The fact that the show is called Knights, they're chasing a white Bronco down Main Street. These jokes still hold up and are funny in 2020 as they were in 2004 as they were referencing things from 1992. They still hold up and are still funny. Time. Uh, I want to let Mr. Coho know it is 2021 now. Uh, so, <laughs> but I get your point. Uh, Ryan, you now have one minute when you start talking. I don't know what world he lives in where burps and joke and, and choking and name calling and all that other stuff isn't funny, especially when we're talking about a movie that is essentially made for children and young adults, not so much the grown folks that we are. All right. It, it, my scene certainly has a lot of very different jokes scattered throughout. And yes, it may be a tense scene, but the tense actually adds to the fact that when the jokes hit, it's that much more jarring, whether it's, uh, you know, him slurping up the water, the finger, cleaner and donkey just looking like mm. but the cop stuff the cop stuff is dated it does not play out as well anymore people children nowadays will probably see that and be a little more horrified rather than find anything funny about their three protagonists being beaten up and cuffed up and thrown into the back of a paddy wagon and you know you can go ahead and say it doesn't matter whether or not you've seen this stuff before in this current climate anything with cops which is why the show got canceled uh, it's just a bad taste in the mouth at least my stuff is a little bit more palatable to everyone. Time. All right. Cool. That was uh that was ugly, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Are we uh, all good? Yeah, I'm, good. I'm good. I'm good. Okay. All right. Uh, good, Caleb. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go first. 
Oh God. <laughs> you cut out again. Sorry. Um, I'm going with Ryan. Um, and I think that Ryan played this very smart and kind of just got Coho talking so much about the self-referential stuff with the Shrek franchise and got him and was had really good arguments for why it wasn't funny. And Coho got so mad and in his own head, I think, uh, that it that it just like backfired. And I think Ryan kept it pretty calm and collected. I give Ryan the point. Uh, Brooklyn, you get to go next. I completely disagree. I give it to Caleb Coho. Um, Ryan generated no... F- I, the offense that he tried to land fell flat for me every single time. Um, and I think just I think Coho took anything that he threw and was, was throwing great counter-strikes. So. All right, Cody, you get to decide this point. Oh, Brooklyn is in la-la land for this one. Um, one, this did not say anything. Burps and fart jokes. Um, it's called the Shrek franchise, which I wanted somebody to bring up at some point. This whole thing is built on farts and burps. Um, but overall, Coho shot himself at the beginning and was never able to recover. He said the jokes made in the top thing, you don't understand when you're a kid, but you fully understand when you're older. Ryan brought up the reference thing, and then Coho had to backspin off that and say, that doesn't matter anymore. The references don't matter. You don't need to know the references. But then she kept driving the white Bronco and the the pepper grinders and the stuff that you need to know from those references, but said they didn't matter. So his entire argument fell in shambles. I went with Ryan because he overall sold it. I think they both picked terrible scenes, but. (laughs) okay all right so we are going to the bonus question here's how it's going to work uh we have randomized a category from the realm of fan zone and i'm going to say the question uh you gentlemen will then get to answer the question if you need to use your laptops and such feel free to do so um but uh once i say the question whoever answers first will be going first you will get a 40 or yes a 45 second opening and then a 30 second rebuttal, each of you. You can talk about, you can use your time however you want. Um, so, do we all understand the rules of how this is gonna work? How do we answer first? You just say out loud you, what your uh, answer to the, the answer question answer is. Or just what, what your answer to the question okay. is, you just say, yeah. Uh, Cody, did you have something to say? Just, I would need to clarify when you give the answer of like the years that count in this question, like yes. certain questions. Get and Cody, you can help me if I'm wrong on this. So okay. the category oh. is from Warzone. It is classics is the category, mm-hmm. uh, which I believe goes up to 1959. 69. 69. Okay. So 69, uh, 69 and back. Um, and the question is. What if I should probably pull it up just to make sure I have it right? Okay. What is the most overrated classic film? Gone with the Wind. Citizen Kane. All right. So, Gone with the Wind versus Citizen Kane. I'm going to stay on screen um, to give you guys the countdowns, the 10 second countdowns. Uh, so Ryan, you spoke first, so you will be going first. Uh, you have 45 seconds when you start talking.
for the life of me, every time I've seen Gone with the Wind, it has just always been a movie that's too long. It's a bit of a slog. The characters are not as likable or as uh, endearing as some people would make them out to be. Uh, certainly, Rhett and Scarlet is just one of the most toxic relationships I've ever seen in my lifetime. And uh, there's just so much bad things that go on in this film that I, I can't understand for the life of me how people can go ahead and, and praise it simply because it was a masterful piece of work. But, you know, there were a lot of other masterful pieces of work that, you know, had much better storytelling and much more likable characters. Uh, Gone with the Wind is just one of those things that, you know, was maybe a product of its time, but as of right now and in my lifetime, it's just never been a movie that's thrilled me. Time. Coho, you now have 45 seconds when you start talking. Everyone always calls something the Citizen Kane of X, Citizen Kane of comic book movies, the Citizen Kane of this. And the issue with that is that Citizen Kane itself is a movie that does not work. That film on a fundamental level has nothing to latch on to in it. You can tell me on a technical level that it's well masterfully done, but the issue is really it isn't. It's not shot very well. It's not paced very well. Orson Welles himself is not giving that good of a performance. The script sort of falls apart by the time you get to the second act. Uh, there's not a lot of things to latch on to, whereas Gone with the Wind has Vivian Leigh's performance that I can at least latch on to. I think she's pretty incredible throughout that entire movie and giving one of the best, best actress winning performances of all time. She's fantastic as Scarlet, and there's absolutely things about that movie that I think you can gravitate to. But if we're going to talk about four-hour movies with unlikable characters, I can promise you, I'm sure we both watched the Snyder Cut. We can't complain about either. The issue is... Cause, cause, uh, I died. Fuck. <laughs> I hate tongue twisters. <laughs> Strike, I died, fuck. From the, uh, Thank you. I would like to record. Record. <laughs> uh, Ryan. <laughs> Ryan, you now have 30 seconds when you start talking. <sighs> The reason Sinister King is so highly regarded is because it's pretty much a filmmaker's film. It's pretty much uh, the reason that we have directors who want to become more auteurs and experimental with what they want to do. This was Orson Welles' baby, and he birthed it into childhood. Whereas Gone with the Wind, it's one of those films that's pretty much just, it hasn't aged as well. And as far as technical aspects, there are other movies that are doing it. As far as color aspects, there are other people that do it. As far as you know, acting, there is much better acting. And certainly the subject material is far more grisly with the, the death and the war and the racism. Time. Coho, 30 seconds when you start talking. It's actually Herman J. Mankiewicz's baby. Orson Welles just took the credit. The big issue with, uh, with Sister Kane is it's really not a filmmaker's film. He didn't even make his own movie. It's off the back of a script that wasn't his. He got credit for it and didn't mean to. Gone with the Wind is a film that at least it's long, I'm sure, but there's a lot of people that I know who still enjoy that movie. You can grasp onto the different aspects. Just because it doesn't thrill you doesn't mean it doesn't thrill other people. Vivian Leigh's objectively a fantastic performance all the way through. There is It is shot beautifully. It looks great. There's things about that movie that you can latch onto and enjoy in a four-hour version of the movie, whereas there's nothing in Citizen Kane that makes Time. it good. Okay. Are you guys good? No, not yet. Um, I, I am. I always write right after the person speaks because so they can't read my handwriting. Smart. Shit. 
so sorry about the thing that's going to happen after this. They're going to have to run late. No, they're fine. I'm sure they are. What's happening? They, we have a fandom match after this, but it was supposed to be earlier, and they pushed it. It's, it's their fault. What match? Sorry, this doesn't matter. I don't want to say it, yeah. Um, oh, <laughs> okay. Do, do they had to put out a poop anyway, so. I'm sorry. I'm just. You're good. Don't worry. This was a lot closer for other people than it was for me. It was. And it was, yeah, I'll say what I'm thinking in a second. Uh, Cody, I think you decided the last one, right? Correct. Okay, so you can go first. So, this was a fine battle. I think it was good. I think you both picked arguably correct films. I think they're both pretty overrated. Um, I think what the tackle was... Coho was just able to land some more punches for me throughout. Um, and I think Ryan locked onto why it didn't appeal to him. And his rebuttal, he had some stuff to say about like why stuff doesn't work, but I wanted that in his opening. I think that would have been stronger. Coho was able to brutalize his movie, regardless if he's pulling it out of his ass or not. He brutalized his movie and said it doesn't work. I have to give Coho the point on this one. This, this is a great debate match. Whoever wins. Um, yeah, I'll go next. Um, I agree with a lot of what Cody said. Ultimately, what won the point for me um, was in the rebuttal by Mr. Coho. Um, he had a lot of points that like I'm 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 going I'm honestly still going back. It wasn't as close to me as it was to I give I'm giving it to Coho. His 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 rebuttal I think was really really strong. Like Cody said he brutalized Gone with the Wind and I think he did a really good job of propping uh up why Citizen Kane is not uh the the, the best uh I yeah, man, jeez. I don't know. Coho wins. I'm sorry. I'm like that one was really intense for me. Uh, Brooklyn, your vote doesn't count. Where would you have gone? Um, yeah, that one was super close, but uh, that, that's kind of a trend. Uh, I would have went with Ryan. Um, I think, <laughs> I, I think his um, yeah, we've been polar opposites. Uh, no, Ryan's um, in these speed round, in these speed round settings, the rebuttal I think is super important. I think Ryan did a really good job. Coho did really. Coho did good at go. Coho had a good rebuttal overall, but I think he I think he just tackled a different aspect that ultimately I sold with I was more sold with Ryan. All right, so with that, your winner is Caleb Coho in Sudden Death. Um, so we will start by talking uh, with uh, Ryan. Actually, Ryan, you played a hell of a game. Um, for someone who I I, I know we we had talked earlier today, um, who was. Uh, you know, a little nervous about the match, and after your last match, you came out guns a blazing today. I think this was your best debate by far so far in fan zone. How are you feeling about the match? Uh, well, I will agree with you. It was definitely better than what happened with Brian Michaels. I can accredit to that. You can accredit to that. I think even Brooklyn can accredit to that, considering he was there. Um, but I mean, that last question was really just harder than I think it was meant to be for myself because I mean, when it comes to classics, I'm not exactly the best rounded. So I just had to think, okay, what classic movies have I had to see mostly because of my sister, because she loves them that I hate. I don't like Gone with the Wind. She doesn't like From Dust Till Dawn. That's just our differences of taste. But uh, I, I, I have to give it to Coho. Coho, uh, it didn't feel so much like the Coho of old, but there were instances there where it's like, 
is he gonna put on the crown? I, I just kind of felt it to a certain extent when he was, you know, really coming at me. And, you know, it, it's good that he did that because and I think it kind of like, um, what's the term? Uh, you know, kicked my ass into high gear. You know, it got me a little more fired up, took all that nervous energy that I was talking about with you and really put it forward properly. So at least I can say that I benefited from having somebody who wasn't going soft on me. Yeah, you played a hell of a game. Um, I hope you come back to play again because I think that um, if you keep putting in the work like you did tonight, man, like that that was insane. It was a very close match. Uh, most of the decisions today were split. Um, great job all around. Uh, so uh, let's move over to the winner, Mr. Coho. Caleb, it came down to the final question there. Um, how are you feeling about your performance today? Uh I hate that speed rounds are the tiebreaker because <laughs> that always puts it super nervous on me, but speed rounds are like where I thrive. That's like the, that's the debate format that I love doing the most. Um, I, I knew, I knew I was picking citizen Kane right away. I just wanted to wait till I could go second. Uh, but um, I, I thought, uh, I thought both of his, I thought Ryan did great. Ryan put up a great fight. I thought I lost Sorkin. Uh, I thought I won horror. Uh, it was weird. I, the trade-off, it's the thing where you think you're going to win one or you think you're winning one in the moment, then you don't, or you think you're losing one, then you win one. Uh, Ryan did a great job. Um, yeah, the, yeah, I'm drained. I forgot, I forgot to pay take so much out of me. Uh, I forgot about it. Uh, I'm like shaking still. So, uh, yeah, you played fantastic. This doesn't mean that you go on to play RJ in the next match. Uh, how are you feeling about that matchup? That's gonna be so weird. I don't think I can yell at RJ. I'll be honest with you. I don't think I can yell at RJ. Um, he's so he's so like good at like being relaxed but firm in what he's saying every time. It's like Nick. That's why I like hope I never have to fight Nick Tuick. Uh, the like there's some debaters who are like really good at staying calm but being forceful in their opinion. I think RJ is one of them. Um, I'm very. I'm I'm gonna have to do a lot of uh, a lot of prep for for that debate. I'm excited for it. Uh, it's gonna be a good one. Robert, you're supposed to do the damn thing. It's supposed to be me v you three. I'm still itching for the rematch. Yeah, that's that's not happening uh, this this time. But Coho, uh, great job today. Uh, let's get final thoughts starting with Brooklyn. Uh, yeah, no, that was that was really good. Um, Ryan, uh, Ryan had a had a much better performance uh, th than last time. Um, I think I think the in the induction the, the, the induction of horror, his usage of horror, I think really shined. Um, but yeah, uh, Cody, what about you? Well, if me and Brooklyn are on different calls, or if we're not either one of us is not on this map, it could go different ways because we were clearly not in sync on who we thought won stuff. Um, so, like, Ryan's, like, hesitance from his last match, everybody's been in the debate match that has just knocked on their way and brutally got their ass kicked. It happens to everybody at some point down the line. Uh, that Brian Michaels was just, I think, just placement and questions and Brian being really good. Um, so, with today, like, Ryan put some work in, doesn't get, like, off tangent against Coho as much. Like Coho is the person that gets people off tangent more than any other person ever. So if he can just focus in and find somebody and play somebody to get his record back up, I think he has a real shot to be uh, a stud in this league. And Coho, again, it's Coho. I knew he was going to go second. I, I can almost predict Coho's movements before he makes them, but he just fine tune some stuff. I think he could be a champion in this league. I really do. I think he's got every tool there. He, if he just gets out of his own damn head and stops repeating himself so fucking much. So yeah. 
that's fair. Uh, I think this is the best match we've had in round one of the tournament. This was a great match. Um, so, guys, that's going to do it for us. Uh, in two weeks, we have the final match of the round one of the tournament, Andrew Barr versus Joe Harrison. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. But until then, this has been Fan Zone. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. That's my bad, I was sending a tweet.